Welcome to the Healing Pain Podcast. Your host, Dr. Joe Tata, leads the conversation around the way pain is treated in the U.S. and around the world with experts from the fields of medicine, physical therapy, nutrition, personal development, exercise, psychology, and more. Each week, you can listen to receive free information about ways to treat and reverse chronic persistent pain. Now, here is Dr. Joe Tata. Hey there, welcome to episode number 115 of the Healing Pain Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Joe Tata. Today on the podcast, we are discussing chronic low back pain with Dr. Peter O'Sullivan. If you are a physical therapist, you may have already heard of Dr. O'Sullivan's work or possibly read some of his research. And if you're someone who is looking to learn more about chronic low back pain so you can find some help, this podcast will be one you'll want to listen to over and over because it's filled with some great information that you won't find anywhere else. Dr. O'Sullivan is a professor of musculoskeletal physiotherapy at Curtin University in Perth, Australia. In addition to his teaching and research, he works in clinical practice as a physiotherapist. He is recognized internationally as a leading clinician, researcher, and educator in the management of complex musculoskeletal pain disorders. On today's podcast, you will learn about Dr. O'Sullivan's journey from clinician to researcher and educator, how his research and study into back pain physiotherapy and behavioral psychology has changed his own belief system, treatment approach, and practice in treating chronic low back pain, how he developed and continues to refine the cognitive functional therapy model for treating low back pain, how to effectively use exposure therapy for people with pain, and finally, how to make sense of pain, whether you're a practitioner or a patient. And like I said earlier, we cover a lot of ground during this podcast and include a lot of detail. So of course, you can come back and listen to this, but you can also go to my website, drjotata.com, where you can read the entire transcript. Every single episode, every podcast is fully transcribed, so you can grab the show notes at drjotata.com. Lastly, if you're a practitioner, hop on over to the Integrative Pain Science Institute.com and sign up for the mailing list there so I can send you information about the latest educational offerings that will be coming out in early 2019, which will include a course on nutrition for pain, as well as a course on ACT or acceptance and commitment therapy for chronic pain, which I'll be co-teaching with Dr. Joanne Dahl. Okay, this is a great podcast. I really enjoyed recording this with Peter. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. Let's begin with Dr. Peter O'Sullivan. Hey, Peter, welcome to the Healing Pain Podcast. It's great to have you here. Thanks, Joe. Nice to be here. I've been waiting to talk to you. I've been excited to talk to you. You've got some really great research and clinical work that you do. You're, of course, a physiotherapist who has studied back pain quite in depth and started to create your own methodology and system. But I'm curious, just, just as a fellow physio, I'm curious to know how you went from kind of your undergrad work in, in physiotherapy to pursuing a PhD in researching low back pain. Yep. Well, that's a 30-year journey for me. <laughs> it's, it's a long journey. And um, it's kind of taken a number of uh, turns, I suppose. And when I look back, it's probably a process of evolution. I did my basic training in New Zealand, and uh, so there was a pretty strong emphasis in terms of the McKenzie approach, very much of a pathoanatomical understanding of pain. And I have to say, it, it didn't sit well with me in a lot of ways. 
I'm naturally a pretty active guy and not very fearful. And a lot of the messages I think that we were giving people just didn't gel well. <laughs> and I suppose as a young physiotherapist and thinking back then, there was very little research in the world of pain. So I had this sense, and I can remember as a young graduate, I had the sense that there was this open space where research needed to be done in the space of pain that just hadn't been done. And so I ended up heading to Australia and doing my postgraduate um, manual therapy training in Perth, Western Australia. And following that, I spent some time working with Bob Elvey, who some of the older physios might remember uh, as an amazing clinician, but also worked in a pain clinic. And that was uh, quite an eye-opening experience for me where I realized that manual therapy didn't really have much of a role to play with these people who are really disabled, highly sensitized and very distressed with pain. And I realized that we really didn't have much understanding in terms of research as to what was happening. And that's where I really embarked on my research career. And I've kind of, that's been a tandem career for me between always working in clinical practice, which I've done my entire 30 years, uh, and also having a research career. And a lot of that career has been underpinned by testing my beliefs and then realizing that much of what I believed in completely unraveled when we looked at the data of <laughs> that we were collecting. And so if you kind of follow my research career, a lot of it is testing hypotheses which fundamentally tested my belief system as stuff that I've been taught as a PT. And much of it, the majority of that stuff just wasn't supported by the evidence. And so this constant updating of my belief system and then adapting that in terms of a change in practice. And part of that as well as this massive increase in understanding of pain neuroscience and behavioral psychology and stuff, which just married so beautifully in the pain space. So that's kind of been the wave that I've ridden, I suppose, across my career. And I see myself as incredibly fortunate to have been part of that, what has been an amazing journey of learning and on the unraveling, I suppose, that something, the complexity, the pain that we see in the people that we come across. And that pain neuroscience wave or that change in our perspective of what pain is, was that a precipitator? Would that precipitate you to go back for your PhD or was it more just your own uh, self-exploration at that point? No, it's a combination of so many different things. I, yeah. I can think of numerous patients that I saw and I can still remember them vividly of people who had been told they had unstable pelvises, had their pelvises fused and then they got pregnant again and all their pain came back and all the clinical signs came back that we thought were related to unstable pelvises. So patients who have become terrified of movement just having panic attack with the thought of doing movement that might involve bending the back. People with widespread body pain who you couldn't touch. So these are kind of the, I suppose because I was working in a space, coming across people who were kind of failed primary care and are really desperate. And they were often very open to tell and share their story. And, yeah. and I changed my practice around 1996 where I decided that I could no longer work on short appointment times. And I set my practice up so I'd spend an hour with every new patient. And I think it gave me a lot of time to listen. Yeah. It gave me time to explore. It gave me time to reflect. It gave me time to play and to learn and then to kind of readapt what I was doing. And 
I think that was a critical shift in terms of my practice to actually allow the people I work with to become my teachers. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, I probably want to get back to that point later in the podcast because the time we spend with patients is not only critical for the patient, but I also think, as you mentioned, it's critical for us in our profession. It's something that I think physios tackle globally, which probably could be a PhD or slash another podcast in in and of itself. But let's talk about back pain first. Let's kind of set the stage as far as back pain goes. Let's spend just a moment or two on that 10% of back pain where there's serious pathology involved? Probably not that high. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So the whole issue of pathology, if you're talking serious stuff around malignancies, fractures, and infections, that's probably around the 1% to 2%. There's a group of people who might have radiculopathy with a neurological deficit, and that's probably another few percent. But then you've got this other group, and I think this is where we get blurry around what we call pathology because the problem we've got now is that with MRI scanning, pretty much everyone gets dumped with a pathology label, particularly as they get older because everyone's got stuff on a scan. And what we know about most of the stuff that you see in an MRI scan, if you take out malignancy and infection, that most of the stuff, structural stuff that you see is also prevalent in pain-free people. So the whole idea of pathology is a really great area Uh, where we know that there are people walking around, 30% of people walking around with protrusions and 60% with disc bulges. And there are people with stress reactions and bones that don't have pain and others do have pain. And so pain may have an association with structure, but the full story is not told by structure. And that's where we have a multidimensional view of understanding pain that gives you such a clearer view of why some people can present with so-called structural changes that may be associated with pain. And others may have similar kind of changes on a scan, but have very little pain and disability. Yeah. Uh, and that's explained through other processes. Yeah. So really what you're saying is that in probably 95% of the cases, you know, cases, there's not a single pathoanatomical cause that can be identified. Look, there may be things on a scan that might be associated with the pain, but it's not adequate enough to explain the person's pain experience and their level of disability. And I think that's an area that's really important. So how you experience pain and how I do is informed by so many things (laughs) across our life, contextual factors, early life experiences, et cetera, and how you respond to it will be massively informed by your coping responses, your belief systems, your levels of self-efficacy, all kinds of things will influence how you respond to pain. And so the clinical presentation of someone who may have, let's say, let's take something like a disprolapse with radiculopathy, can be completely different between two individuals who may look like they have the same thing on a scan, but their clinical presentation may be completely different. And that's explained by all these other factors that we know are important. Yeah. We're going to talk about some of those factors. And for those who are watching or listening to the podcast, if you want to sample um, some of Peter O'Sullivan's work, if you go to the Physical Therapy Journal and look up Cognitive Functional Therapy, an Integrative Behavioral Approach for the Targeted Management of Disabling Low Back Pain, it's a wonderful perspective paper on not only low back pain, but also Cognitive Functional Therapy, which is something that Peter's been working on, which we're going to talk about in a moment. In that paper, Peter, you talk about protective or resilience factors, which I love that terminology because so often we're, like we've done for the past couple of minutes, focusing on what could potentially be wrong versus 
what can we do to build ourselves up, make ourselves resilient? What are the factors that help protect our spine and protect us from persistent pain? Let's just first talk about positive beliefs. Can we talk about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So resilience is a really interesting area. And of course, it's been researched across a whole bunch of different health issues. But uh, with pain, it's very interesting because things like beliefs seem to be really important that if you have a belief that back pain is pretty normal occurrence, that back pain means that you shouldn't lie down, that you can still go to work with back pain, that uh, movement is safe and actually healthy if you have back pain, you're way less likely to become disabled and lose time off work with back pain. And those beliefs, we've done research looking at some young people from early life and those beliefs emerge really early in life. So as early in, in terms of teenagers, you can identify these beliefs and they're linked to behaviors. And so people with positive beliefs around back pain are less likely to seek care. They're less likely to avoid physical activity. They're less likely to report any functional limitations in their life. And those beliefs are quite closely married to their parents' beliefs. So pain is something and how we respond to pain, something we learn really, really, really early in life. And that's informed by the culture around pain in our family situation. And so you realize that that's why these beliefs are so strongly embedded. They're not just driven out of society, which certainly plays a role. And we hold cultural beliefs around back pain, which are really ill-informed and not evidence-based. But boy, they're powerful. And the negative ones are prevalent. But we do know that there are people in our community who hold positive beliefs. And they're strongly linked to factors like the beliefs of the parents as well. Yeah. Interesting. It's almost like from early life, we set up kind of these rule govern thinking, rule govern behavior. Yeah. That if I Spot have on. pain, I cannot go to work. If I have pain, I cannot yeah. go to school. And that starts to affect someone deeply as, yeah. as time goes on. Exactly. And we published a paper this year showing that if a young person is taking time out of school because of their back pain, 70 years later, they're significantly more likely to take time out of work for their back pain. And so these are kind of life trajectories that emerge probably pretty early in life and they set their course. So we kind of look at where do you start intervening with this stuff? It's got to be at a societal level and it probably has to happen pretty early and it has to happen within families because these beliefs are massively pervasive within our community. Yeah. And often those messages that I think are promoted out there create a lot of vulnerability for people. Oh, huge. And there's an industry that feeds off it. And I think that's the thing that I find most distressing is actually we have a health industry that feeds off people's suffering. And often it reinforces a negative belief system as a mechanism of locking people into continuing care, which is great for business, but crap for health. And I find that completely disgusting. (laughs) (laughs) as a healthcare practitioner, to think that we could be still funding care that actually could be detrimental to someone's health. Yeah. Well, here in the United States, we have whole institutions just created around a biomedical model. We have hospitals that their names, the names of the hospital are so in line with the biomedical model that it makes me think, oh, we have so much work to do. But I think your work and others of people on the podcast help push that message forward. In your paper, there's another part of cognitive factors that you talk about and you call it cognitive flexibility. And I saw that in the paper and I was like, yeah. oh, that's, that's so interesting because it, it has a little bit of a flavor of like acceptance and commitment therapy where they talk about psychological flexibility yeah. and how important that is when someone 
is coping and moving beyond some of these cognitive factors. Yeah, and look, we've, um, we're exploring this in a big trial that we're running at the moment in Australia. We've got some qualitative data to suggest that when we look at people with disabling back pain and kind of track their journey, the people who look like they do well, the people who develop a biopsychosocial understanding of pain, they develop strategies to cope and manage their pain and kind of get on with their lives. The people who look like they don't do well from this approach are people who say, look, that's all very well, but actually my back's stuffed and I need it fixed. And before it gets fixed, I can't get on with my life. So they're just stuck. And that kind of taps into this idea of cognitive flexibility where you can look at a problem and actually shift your thinking and adapt your life around it. And so it does tap into some of those factors around acceptance that allow you to kind of explore a problem from a different perspective. Yeah. Changing perspective is so important when it comes to pain. I think a lot of the explained pain that has done so well for people just provides them with a different perspective as to what their pain is and what the possibility is, even if they have just a little bit of pain in their life going forward. Yeah, and it's interesting. If you look at some different cultures, like the Buddhist culture has this idea of accepting suffering. We, we don't do that in the Western world. Like pain is something you've got to fix, you've got to cure it. You should have a right to have no pain. And I personally have a problem with that. I mean, I personally have pain. I've had dozens of various injuries in my life and I would feel pain in my body pretty much every day. It's pain that doesn't define me. It doesn't limit me. It doesn't bother me. I don't engage emotionally with it. And I've learned to do that, I think. And I've certainly been very fortunate, I think, as a healthcare practitioner to have a fair repetitive dose of pain in my life. Mm. And I think I've been really fortunate that I grew up in a household where pain wasn't something that was given too much attention to. It, I was encouraged to get on with it and move on in spite of it. So I was fortunate that that was kind of the background and framework in which I could learn to manage pain in my own life. Talk to me about the physical factors that are involved with the resilience factors that you talk about in your paper. So one of the things that in terms of management or in terms of protection? Let's talk about in terms of protection first, because I think that's one part yeah. that people don't quite think about. Okay. So there is some pretty good evidence around healthy lifestyle as being protective. So engaging in regular physical activity and physical activity is interesting because there's a bit of a U-shaped curve around people who are involved and engaged in really high levels of activity and people who do very little have an increased risk in terms of pain. But a healthy dose of physical activity is pretty protective. And similarly with other lifestyle factors in terms of healthy body weight, regular sleep, these lifestyle factors look like they're really important. And, and as a society, we are more sedentary, more sleep deprived, unhealthy in terms of diet. And we tend to be extremes of either no exercise or crazy amounts of exercise. And it's obviously not often not well regulated. All of those factors can be factors around risk. So the protective factors are the opposite to that around healthy diet, good sleep, healthy sleep patterns, regular physical activity, breaking up sedentary behaviors in terms of engaging in physical activity. Yeah. So all the things that you and I have been talking about now are things that are modifiable. They're things that someone with low back pain, if they're listening to this podcast, they can start to change on their own. So they can yeah. start to improve the way they sleep. They can start to move, just listening. I've had the number of people I've had who've told me, just listening to your podcast has taken my anxiety away, which yeah. we know is helpful when it comes to pain. Yeah. 
Talk to me about, I know this is your journey, but now you've started to craft and mold all of this into what you call cognitive functional therapy. Yeah. T- tell us what that is. Yeah, it's interesting. We've, <laughs> we didn't really know what to call it because there are elements. It's an integrated approach, and we we're very clear about that in the paper. So it kind of lends, it evolved out of physical therapy practice, essentially, because we are physical therapists. And it's kind of integrated other aspects in terms of behavioral learning, understanding of pain neuroscience, understanding of uh, behavior change to develop a kind of integrated model. I think one of the things that we see in the current health climate is that we've got PTs on one side that will tend to be more structural, biomechanical. And then you've got the psychs on the other side, which are very much around more the CBT or the ACT approach, which are the talking therapies. And there's this middle ground where there's the talking and the doing. And I think what we see with CFT, and the reason we called it FT is the F bit, is that the behavioral aspects are really seem to be very important, is that we embody pain in our bodies. And so we kind of see that there are three main elements to the intervention. The first is the exploration of the person's story where we would capture their story, the contextual factors around their pain, their beliefs, their behavioral responses to pain, the impact that it's having on their life and how that might be affecting them emotionally. And then we would explore the things that the key functional barriers for them to engage in valued life activity. So I can think of a, a chap I saw recently who was very disabled and his, the things that really distressed him is that he couldn't go back to work. And to work, he needed to engage in lifting and bending and moving his body. And he'd been told he couldn't. He really wanted to play with his kid and he really wanted to ride a bike. So we would then, in the physical examination, explore the barriers for him engaging in those valued activities. So for him, it would be bending and lifting with critical movements that we then explored. And he was highly fearful and sensitized around that, but very guarded in the way he did it. And so we run through a series of behavioral experiments where we say, okay, well, let's look at bending with the premise that bending is not dangerous. (laughs) That's the most important thing. And that lifting is a normal, healthy thing for a back. And uh, he'd been told that all these things were dangerous for him, of course. And so through that first examination, we got him to relax, got him to stop guarding and bracing his abdominal wall, started to get him to breathe, uh, started to get him to stop propping off his hands. And through a graded exposure process, while we got him to desist from his protective behaviors, he realized that actually he could touch his toes and then he could load his back. And that creates this massive cognitive shift for someone who walks in thinking that they can't do their job, that bending and lifting is dangerous. And at the end of the session, with a bunch of behavioral experiments, they walk out going, shit, I can bend my back and I can lift. And actually it didn't break my back and it hasn't been a catastrophe. And that sets the person up to be educated where it's the learning in the body that we think is critical to behavior change. What we see at the moment is that talking to people isn't enough. That kind of talks to the cognitive part of the brain, but so much of pain is linked to the emotional brain. And that is linked to things like fear and distress and worry and uncertainty and a lack of confidence. And it's the doing that really shifts that part of kind of disabling persistent pain experience that then opens people up to shift their cognitive thinking. Yeah. What's so interesting is as I'm going through your paper and reading, and I've read a couple of the papers that you have as well, is that I think you're the first practitioner who has 
really started to put into the research that although movement may be a science, when it comes to movement and pain, it's movement is actually a behavior. Yeah. Spot and on. I, and I, I think it's a, really, a massive shift for me. Yeah. And it's a delicate thing that I bet most people probably just kind of like glance over. When you look right. at movement as a behavior versus movement as a science, yeah. it changes a whole lot of things for yeah. people. Yeah. And I think it's really helpful as a practitioner. I mean, I came to this whole process with thinking of pain, uh, movement as biomechanics and I've really shifted to see movement as behavior. And look, this fits well with the contemporary understanding of what changes when people have pain. That if you look at the systematic reviews that compare people with and without back pain, the common story you see is that people with back pain, particularly if they're disabled or distressed, move slower, they're more guarded, they're stiffer, they're more co-contracted. The brain protects the bit that's threatened. And often our therapies and advice to people are to reinforce that. Go sit up straight. God say, don't bend your back when you lift. Brace your core when you move. We're reinforcing those protective behaviors and the very advice that we give people with pain. And it's the stuff that they already do. So those behaviors reflect beliefs and emotions. We know, for example, that if someone's frightened, they'll co-contract more, they'll move slower, they're more guarded. And so there's this whole a kind of manifestation of someone's beliefs and emotions in terms of the way they move. And that is an expression of, that's the embodiment of how they see their problem. And so you see someone come into your room and they're hobbling in and they squat down to pick something up and they're bracing off their hand. That person's frightened. They're, They're terrified of bending. And just having that understanding shifts the way you look at pain, I think. Yeah, excellent. So one of the aims of cognitive functional intervention is, this is what you've been talking about, really is exposure, exposing them to these type of movements. Just a kind of a technical question as far as exposure goes, because when the word exposure is kind of like Kleenex, it means a lot of different things to different people. (laughs) When you expose someone to movement, when you're challenging those movement patterns, are you looking for a sympathetic arousal in them? Yeah. So we're trying to dampen it actually. So one of the things that you'll notice with someone who's really frightened of doing something is they'll tend to ramp up their sympathetic arousal. So you'll see this by increased tension. They may start hyperventilating or breathing more rapidly, or they may breath hold. So we will explicitly dampen that process. So before we would expose anyone to something scary, we would explicitly relax them slow their breathing rate down, get them to diaphragm breathe. So it's like you're disarming them before you expose them. And that seems to be very important because where exposure goes wrong is if you say to someone who says, look, I think I'm going to hurt myself by bending. And you go, no, you'll be fine, bend. And they bend and their experience is that they go into a panic response and you get them to do it repetitively. And if their pain ramps up, and their distress increases, you've reinforced fear learning. But if you have someone who has this fear of bending, for example, and you get them to stop and you relax them and you calm them down and you shift their attention from their back, you get them to relax and bend and they don't ramp up and you often have the sense of disbelief because they're expecting pain, they don't feel it, you disarm them in that process and it builds safety learning. And we would believe that how you go about exposure can either reinforce fear learning or safety learning. And the safety learning is the key for building self-efficacy around movement and shift, reducing someone's fear. 
Interesting. Exposure really came yeah. out of psychology, mostly around anxiety, and then has yeah. kind of grown yeah. from there. So it's a little bit different in your perspective. And I think the reason it's different, I had a, I was really fortunate to be at a fantastic conference in Sweden with Stephen Linton and Michelle Kraske, who's expert in anxiety and particularly phobias and fear. Yeah was at that conference. And it was interesting having this discussion around exposure is very effective for other phobias. But for spiders, it's really effective unless you're bitten by the spider. But <laughs> <laughs> it's life-threatening. And then it's not so effective because it drives fear learning. And the problem with pain is there is often a consequence. So there is a punishment for doing that. And pain is such a powerful learning. It has this very powerful ability to influence behavior. So if you're just exposing someone to something that's threatening and their pain levels ramp up and their distress ramps up, that can backfire massively and reinforce fear learning. And the exposure literature around back pain would suggest that it, it doesn't work for everybody. And, and we would suggest that the reason for that is that if you're not managing that person really sensitively and carefully and they don't trust you and you haven't dampened down those sympathetic drivers at the beginning, then it can seriously backfire. And what will happen is the person's belief that bending's bad for them becomes reinforced. Yeah, they're great points. I've read some of Michelle Kraske's work and in her yeah. work, she actually says you have to expose people for about 30 second increments. And she's mostly right. talking about anxiety. And exactly, to, your, yeah. to your point, if you're not really good at managing that entire experience, it's it could go wrong. Right even managing your own expectations and your own experience. Well, it's so interesting. So part of the thing that, we, that fascinates us when we're training physios in this approach is probably not even to look at what they say, but it's their body language. And yeah. it's almost built in us as human beings is to have this sense of not wanting to hurt someone. And so to, to calmly sit with someone while they have a panic attack is a really important thing to learn to do when you're doing exposure work. One of the things that I hold very strongly in my mind when I'm working with people with pain is understanding that pain doesn't mean harm and that you can take someone back to something really scary and it might be terrifying, but how you manage that is so important. So I often use the example of if you're rock climbing with someone and you've got someone who's scared of heights, you've got to be such a cool, calm person who holds that person on rope, gives them confidence, talks them calmly and your body language will dictate how that person responds. If you're edgy and uncertain and a bit, bit erratic, that'll freak out. And I reckon it's exactly like that with dealing with people in pain, with exposure, like how you manage that process, the way you talk, your body language is so important to keep that person calm during that process. Yeah, excellent. Tremendous points because I think exposure sounds great and then you kind of get into it and it's like you're sweating more than the patient is. Humans are like dogs. They can smell fear, I reckon, yeah. a mile off. <laughs> <laughs> totally. The first part of your CFT intervention, or one of the, probably the parts where you start, is something you call making sense of pain. I love the way that sounds. Yeah. And look, this has really come out of some of the work um, of one of our PhD students, Sam Bonsley, who has written some lovely papers around the experience of people with back pain who are highly fearful. And the model that was proposed a number of years back by a chap called Leventhal called the common sense model of understanding health illness perceptions. And it proposes that every human being tries to make sense of their health problem. So if it's back pain, you'll try and make sense of it from your historical perspective, what you understand is going on, what you think the consequences are, what's the time frame. 
what solutions you can create around that. And this common sense model, she, Sam led a lovely paper that was published in JOSBT last year, looking at back pain through that lens. And one of the things that we often see with patients when we work with them, and we take their story and then we explore their story, we look at, examine them through an exposure process. Then we sit down and we say, look, this is how I see your story. And I kind of see it a bit like someone brings a jigsaw puzzle to you with all the pieces, but they've lost what the picture looks like. And your job as the practitioner is to go, you know what, let's lay these pieces out and let's make sense of your puzzle. And then we kind of put the puzzle together and we turn it around and say, do you reckon that's what it looks like? Mm. And often what the patients say is, you know what, that makes sense. And so this kind of sense making is, it's almost like you create a clear understanding of this person's narrative and their pain experience for them. And often there's this kind of moment of just going, you've listened to my story, you've put the pieces together, this makes sense. And so that's why it's not a typical pain education session. It's really about personalizing the person's story and putting it into a a common sense understanding in a way that it is from their narrative, it is their words, but it's done in a way that they can kind of grasp how pain and behavior and emotions all set up these loops that leave people trapped. Most of that happens in the first session or does that continue? It does, yeah. No, it definitely does. But that's an evolving process. So one of the things that interests us is that everyone's journey is quite different. And JP Canero has just finished his PhD and he's got a paper that hopefully will come out soon that has tracked the individual journeys of people going through this intervention. And it's a lovely paper that shows that everyone's journey looks quite different, that people will shift often very quickly. For others, it might be a slower journey. And for some, their beliefs will change really fast. For others, it's slower. And so that kind of common sense understanding for some people just takes time to shift. For others, it can be dramatic. And that kind of highlights the individuality of a person's pain experience. And it's influenced by heaps of stuff, including those things we touched on earlier. Yeah, excellent. And of course, the last part is just lifestyle in general, which I'm big on lifestyle on this podcast. I talk about yeah. lifestyle yeah. a lot. And it's funny, yeah. I, I interviewed Joe Nace, who you know is a great PT yeah, sure. and, and researcher. And uh, a lot of the work in his lab, as we're talking on the podcast, he's like, more and more we're researching how lifestyle affects pain. Uh, you know, as physios, we're, we're very into the movement aspect of things, and we should be. How much of that lifestyle should start to kind of trickle into our practice? Oh, I think it's huge. And look, I sort of see that we need to, an extended scope of practice to adequately deal with the people who need our care. And I think too much in PT practice in Australia is dealing with the worried well. These are people who are pretty well, but they're not coming to us because they bounced out of our care and they're sitting in pain clinics and orthopedic wards and they're on opioids. And I think that's because we haven't cared for them well. They're bounced in and out of our care without being adequately managed. And I think Lifestyle is such an interesting area because it's influenced by so many things. It's influenced by our socioeconomic status. It's influenced by the neighborhood we live in. It's influenced by our health literacy. There are so many things that influence those factors. And it's tricky for some people when they've got really very difficult life circumstances. And I can think of numerous people who've got financial stress and they're having to work massive hours and they're caring for sick family and it's really hard for those people to care for themselves well. 
in terms of their lifestyle because there are so many factors that are working against them. And so we explore as creatively as we can to try and work at ways in which that person can shift their lifestyle to care better for themselves. I think it's very easy for us to sit in judgment and say, well, you've got to be doing X amount of exercise a week. But for some people, it's just not realistic. If they're caring for two sick kids and they've got a mum with Alzheimer's at home and they're working X number of hours to pay for a mortgage. And those life situations are really tough. So it is a sensitive area. And I think similarly with dietary factors and obesity is another, it's kind of like another area that I think we know more and more is around behavioral responses to stress that drive some of those behaviors. And I kind of feel sad when I see very judgmental comments that come out in social media around, well, it's just about what you eat, which highlight that people don't, just don't understand the complexity of human behavior. Yeah, that's true. Absolutely. So we would say in terms of physical activity, we don't tell people they have to do anything, but we'd say that physical activity is a really wonderful thing that is protective against mood. (laughs) It's good for your mood. It's good for pain. It's good for your health, your cardiovascular health, your bone health, et cetera. We would encourage people to engage with whatever physical activity they loved, ideally link it to social activities. So it's always based on preference as related to access and cost and the things that they love. And if you, the problem where you have, where we have around that is that people just don't like being physically active. You have to look at ways of engaging them with activity, doing something else that they love. Like it might be engaging with a friend where they can all dancing or whatever it is, but it's tough because some people have tough lives. So trying to create those opportunities for change in lifestyle realistically can be pretty hard. As the physiotherapy, physical therapy profession starts to make sense of pain, I'm going to use your words there, in a way that we didn't have 10, 15, 20 years ago. Yeah. How do you see our professional change in the next Hmm. decade, let's say? Well, I think we have a huge opportunity to broaden our scope of practice. We're just writing a paper about this at the moment, actually, around what that might look like. And we have a curriculum that's stuff full of stuff. And a lot of it is stuff that's really probably not that helpful. So you know, I think communication should be like 101. Like learning to communicate well with other human beings is so important. And learning motivational techniques and reflective learning techniques and smart motivational practice should underpin patient-centered care should be a model of communication. We have to learn more about human behavior. We have to be comfortable. We know that PTs are not comfortable to ask people about how they feel about their pain and the emotional impact that pain has on their life. We have to be good at doing that. So that's a whole upskilling, I reckon, in terms of practice. And that's not to make us psychologists because we're not delivering care for people where depression is their primary problem, but we are caring for people who are distressed, who are down because they can't do the stuff that they love. And I think adequately acknowledging that and having confidence to explore that with the person is an intervention all on its own. We know validation of a person and just listening to their story is therapeutic, but I don't think we've got a workforce that is confident to do that. So I think we have to build those skills as core skills. I think behavior change is something that's going to be a massive issue and a growing issue in terms of musculoskeletal pain, in terms of these lifestyle factors. 
in terms of people developing confidence around movement. To me, that's a whole area that needs to be embedded in terms of training. I can think of the hundreds of hours that I've spent in my career learning stuff that I really don't value anymore. And it's been part of my journey, but boy, we could save people a lot of heartache by just shifting their focus towards areas that probably going to have be much more fruitful in terms of their practice. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, PT education has come a long way. I mean, I started practicing in 1997. And it's gone from a bachelor's to a master's to a DPT. Mm. And there's some wonderful stuff in there. And then there's some stuff stuffed in there that really needs to be pulled apart a little bit. Yeah. And I think what's happened is we kind of just bolted stuff on to the old model. (laughs) Like it's like we got this old car and we just kind of bolted some stuff on and a new bonnet on and a new roof. But there's some core stuff in there that needs to be shaken out, I reckon. Because those things hang on like tentacles. (laughs) Yeah. And the flip side of that, as I read through your information on cognitive functional therapy, it's fantastic work. And I read through and I I hear a little bit of mindfulness. I hear a little bit of like behavioral psychology acts, CBT, motivational interviewing. Those things don't show up in our education at all. And they're critical. They're critical. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where we kind of see this as an integrated model of care. It's evolved out of an adapted physical therapy practice. And look, the evidence is emerging that it looks like this is no cure for back pain, but it can certainly reduce people's distress and reduce their disability and reduce their pain. And it looks like it has an effect uh, for people with both moderate and those who are pretty disabled. Not all of them, but a significant number of them. And we've got a massive problem in our society because we don't have a lot of interventions that are showing to have much effect. And so where people fail primary care, they will fail to respond to primary care, they rapidly escalate into these really risky hmm. interventions like taking opioids and having injections and implants in your spine and having surgery. And the problem with those interventions, they come with great risk, as you know. So hmm. we see that there's an absolute need in the health environment to create a kind of another narrative around managing pain in a way that empowers people to take control of their health rather than being a passive recipient of pretty average health. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the big take home picture is giving people options that are safe and that empower them and that educate them and give them skills where they can cope in life and move on. Yeah. And look, as a practitioner, having trained as a manual therapist and I wear that hat with difficulty because I think it comes with a fair bit of responsibility that I can think of in my history where people become really dependent on me providing short-term pain relief and yet they're really disabled and distressed. Like that doesn't sit well with me. Empowering someone to take control of their health, to become independent in my care, to get back to the stuff they love, that's the stuff that I think is the goal that sustains me in practice. And the other things that I think give great sense of satisfaction that you're doing good for people. Yeah, very well said. Well, as we come to a close, Peter, I know it's a little bit late where you are now. It's probably close to maybe 10 o'clock in the evening. Here it's about 8.50 in the morning. So I want to take this opportunity to say thank you for your work. I think the work you have is critical, not only for the physiotherapy profession, but it'll spill over to other professions and, of course, help a lot of people. So just extending a little bit of gratitude. And, of course, please let everyone know how they can learn more about you about cognitive functional therapy and all the things that you're up to. I think the other thing I need to acknowledge, I'd like to acknowledge the team that I work with. I'm only one small piece of cog in a 
and a much bigger engine. And I've been incredibly fortunate to work with some wonderful people, both here in Australia and internationally, and people who you're probably familiar with, like Kieran O'Sullivan and Wim Dankitz and Shartan Fersom and Anne Smith, Peter Kent, and many others, JP Canero, who are part of our team, are wonderful people who enable me to do the work that I do. And and that I think as a team, we're stronger, but this work is not about me. It's about a much bigger picture and a group of people. And I'm eternally grateful for them for supporting me on my journey. Excellent. So if you want to learn more about Peter O'Sullivan's work, you can go to pain-ed.com. So it's pain-ed.com. It's a great website, whether you're a practitioner or someone who has pain. You can find out lots of information with regard to how to treat low back pain from a physiotherapy perspective, as well as to learn about cognitive functional therapy. And if you want to tweet directly to Peter, his Twitter handle is at Pete O'Sullivan PT. That's at Pete O'Sullivan PT. So at the end of every podcast, I, of course, ask you to share this information out with your friends and family on Facebook, on LinkedIn, on Twitter. You can tweet to Peter and thank him at PeteOsullivanPT.com. If you're new and you're just listening to the podcast, make sure you hop on over to drjotata.com forward slash podcast. In the upper right-hand corner, there's a small box where you can enter your name and email address. And when you do that, each week, I'll send you the latest information about the Healing Pain Podcast. Thank you, Peter, for being with us all the way from Australia, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Healing Pain Podcast. For more information on this episode and access to links discussed, please visit drjotata.com and click on the podcast tab where you will find the blog post for this and all previous episodes and can sign up for Dr. Joe Tata's email list to receive the latest information on chronic pain. Also, make sure to stay connected on his Facebook page at Dr. Joe Tata. 